guys like Jackie Robinson and then Hank Aaron came in and they and obviously dominated hitting the ball and, and playing the outfield. You saw guys like Satchel Page come out and, and pitch and just really be a dominant pitcher, which paved the way for guys like my dad and Latroy Hawkins and all these yeah. guys. Willie O'Ree, Fritz Pollard, and an exclusive interview with the great Patrick Mahomes, all on this week's Black Diamonds as we pay homage to the Barrier Breakers. When Andrew Rube Foster formed the Negro National League in Kansas City in 1920, he actually thought that he would create a league that was so dynamic that it would force Major League Baseball's hand to expand. Under Foster's vision, you would have had complete integration well before 1947. Rube was almost right. Instead, Major League Baseball would ultimately focus on bringing Black players as opposed to Black teams into its fold. But baseball had actually been integrated prior to Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier in 1947. Integration goes back as far as a guy named William Edward White. William Edward White played one game in what we now know to be the major leagues. This was in 1879. Now, I'm not quite sure if William White knew that he was Black. And certainly those who allowed him to play did not know that he was Black. But William White is believed to have been the byproduct of an affair that his slave owner had with a Black woman who was enslaved at that time. And so White technically holds the distinction of being the first to play in what would be deemed a major league. And then that moves us to, of course, Moses Fleetwood Walker. Moses Fleetwood Walker, as we like to say here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, was the first known Black. He was of darker skin to play in what would be considered a major league. This goes back to about 1883. Moses Fleetwood Walker was a barehanded catcher. Ouch. Yeah, it didn't last very long before guys like Adrian Cap Anson and others formed, quote unquote, a gentleman's agreement that would ultimately ban blacks from playing on white major league teams. This ban would keep blacks out of the major leagues for the next six decades until Jackie Robinson would break baseball's color barrier, or in this case, re-break baseball's color barrier on April 15, 1947. And while we held Jackie for being the ultimate barrier breaker, we do understand and realize that he wasn't the only one and that the road was just as tumultuous for the others who would follow him. As I remind people when they visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, it took Major League Baseball 12 years before every Major League team had at least one black baseball player. The Boston Red Sox, as we know, would become the last team to integrate in 1959 when they signed a guy by the name of Elijah Pumpsy Green. And so in actuality, that is what afforded the Negro Leagues an opportunity to continue to do business because it took Major League Baseball so long to complete the integration cycle. By 1960, the Negro League ceased operations because by that time, the best young black stars had moved into the major leagues or into their minor league system 
and there was no replenishing system. I do think that there were those in the Negro Leagues who thought that perhaps the Negro Leagues would become a feeder system, maybe a pseudo minor league for major league teams. It just wasn't going to happen. And so now if you were an aspiring young black ball player, you could bypass the Negro Leagues and go right into the major leagues, minor league system to pursue your opportunity to play in the major leagues. And it is what ultimately would put the Negro Leagues out of business. And so by 1960, the leagues fold. And we recently installed an exhibit called Barrier Breakers, subtitled From Jackie Robinson to Pumpsy Green. Because it was important for us to make sure that those other baseball pioneers were not forgotten. As we so typically do in our society, we always celebrate the first. We rarely ever remember the second. And if you're number 16 or 17 in this case, you can pretty much forget it. We did one of our episodes of Black Diamonds dedicated to the great Larry Doby, the second man to walk on the moon as we entitled it. And Larry Doby, only over the last decade or so, has finally started to earn his rightful respect for being such a baseball pioneer. And again, I remind people, it didn't get any easier for Elijah Pumphrey Green in 1959 than it did for Jackie Robinson in 1947. They all had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to blaze a path to pursue their major league careers. So our Barrier Breaker exhibit not only chronicles all of those players, but it also celebrates them as well. And it also puts a great spotlight on what set the stage for integration in our society as it relates to baseball or I should say, for what set the stage for integration in America's national pastime. And if we were going to highlight one single event that led to Jackie Robinson's barrier-breaking moment on April 15, 1947, it would be World War II. Because here you had the irony of young Black soldiers dying, fighting the exact same racism in another country that we were being basically asked to accept in this country. And so there was this growing sentiment, even amongst white baseball fans, that was basically saying, well, man, if they can die fighting for the country, why can't they play baseball in this country? And it was that sentiment that I believe gave Branch Rickey the necessary wherewithal to go after Jackie Robinson. Now, as we talked about in our initial episode of Black Diamonds on why Jackie Robinson was the first to, again, quote, unquote, walk on the moon, Branch Rickey didn't sign Jackie away from the Kansas City Monarchs. He took Jackie away from the Kansas City Monarchs because J.L. Wilkinson was never paid, as my mother would say, not one red cent for a player who he had under contract. But J.L. Wilkinson was stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place because J.L. Wilkinson, folks, was white. And I think Ricky understood the fact that it was going to be very difficult for Wilkie to challenge anything or, in this case, try to block him from taking Jackie Robinson away. After all, J.L. Wilkinson had made his entire living in black baseball. And so if this white man who had made his entire living 
successfully in black baseball, stands up to try and protest what essentially every black person in this country had been waiting on, and that was for a black man to play in the major leagues. Well, he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. And so publicly, Wilkie said all the right things. Privately, he was seething. And again, he wasn't seething because a black man was about to play in the major leagues, but this black man that you're going to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. J.L. Wilkerson sold his business interest in the Kansas City Monarchs the year after Jackie takes the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1948. And he sold his business interest to his business partner, T.Y. Baird. And T.Y. Baird, folks, and this falls into the category of you can't make this stuff up, it's too good. T.Y. Baird was a known Kansas City, Kansas Ku Klux Klansman. Yeah, this stuff is just too good. It is too good. But I digress. And, And so Jackie breaks the color barrier in 1947. But little known is the fact that there were four others who would follow Jackie in 1947. Those players, of course, were Larry Doby, Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead. Now, when we start talking about Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead, they are the, essentially the answers to a trivia question because while a few folks know about Larry Doby, virtually no one remembers Thompson, Brown, and Bankhead. Yeah, but they all go over in 1947. As a matter of fact, three of the first five barrier breakers come from the great Kansas City Monarchs. So you can see why J.L. Wilkinson wasn't exactly feeling any of this. Yeah, three of his star players move over to move into the major leagues in 1947. Jackie Robinson, Hank Thompson, and Willard Brown. And these players were all dynamic players for the Kansas City Monarchs. Hank Thompson holds the distinction of being the only player to break the color barrier with two major league teams. He breaks the color barrier with the St. Louis Browns. Willard Brown would eventually join him in 1947 with the St. Louis Browns. And then he re-breaks the color barrier with the New York Giants, taking the field just before Monty Irvin, the legendary Monty Irvin, who coincidentally had been tabbed to be the first. Yeah, Branch Rickey wanted Monty Irvin. We talked about this in that episode on Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey wanted Monty Irvin. He had tried to sign Monty Irvin in 1944, but Effa Manley was not having it. She was prepared to fight him. Effa Manley, or as we dubbed, the queen of the Negro Leagues. She was the owner of the Newark Eagles, and she was prepared to fight Ricky. And as I referred to before, she wasn't very fond of Branch Rickey. As a matter of fact, to say that she couldn't stand Branch Rickey might have been a bit mild in this case. She, she didn't like Branch Rickey very much because she saw what Branch Rickey was trying to do. Branch Rickey was going to raid the Negro Leagues of his star talent and, and then sign them and take them into the major leagues without compensation for any of the Negro League owners. And she was prepared to fight this. And she stood in the way and blocked what would have been Monty Irving barrier-breaking effort with the Dodgers. And, and Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro Leagues. There was nothing that Monty Irvin could not do. I got to know Monty extremely well before he passed away. Just a regal human being who just happened to be one of the greatest baseball players ever. He was a star in the Newark Eagles. And he had just gotten back from World War II, so he's suffering from what we then would call shell shock. 
And of course, now we would call it post-traumatic syndrome. But he was also having those contract squabbles with Effie Manley, who was standing in the way of his barrier-breaking effort. She would eventually allow him to sign with the New York Giants. But Hank Thompson actually beats Monty Irvin to the field. Hank Thompson, folks, had Hall of Fame pedigree. And had it not been for Hank Thompson's personal demons that would ultimately derail what was a tremendous baseball career. Hank Thompson was an infielder for the Kansas City Monarchs who had everything, speed, power, great range, great throwing arm, but he was also very versatile. And so it would be Hank Thompson, Willie Mays, and Monty Irvin, three Negro Leaguers, who would form the major's first all-Black outfield. That's how special a ball player Henry Thompson was. And, and so Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, go to the St. Louis Browns. The St. Louis Browns, folks, were a sideshow. If you were a baseball fan in St. Louis, you didn't care about the St. Louis Browns. You were a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And I think the St. Louis Browns thought that Hank Thompson and Willard Brown would do for them what Jackie had done for Brooklyn. And it just never manifested itself. No one cared about the St. Louis Browns. Willard Brown would later say that he realized that he had left a team in the Kansas City Monarchs who were far superior to the St. Louis Browns. Willard Brown, in his first plate appearance with the St. Louis Browns, hits the first home run by a black player in the major leagues. Willard Brown had borrowed a white teammate's bats because he didn't have his own bats at that time. He goes in as a pitch hitter and hits a home run. What happens? The white teammate broke the bat, smashed the bat into pieces. Welcome to the major leagues. And then the answer to another trivia question. Who was the first black pitcher in Major League Baseball history? Many would naturally assume that it was the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. But Satchel doesn't come up until 1948. The answer is Dan Bankhead, who came from a long line of great Bankhead brothers who called the Negro Leagues home. Dan Bankhead had electric stuff, dominating stuff. He had an arm that rivaled Satchel Page. His fastball had some giddy-up on it. He had dynamic stuff, but it never materialized for Dan Bankhead. The late great Buck O'Neill would surmise that Bankhead's issue primarily control. He never harnessed his control. But you got to remember that Dan Bankhead was from a small town in Alabama, just outside of Birmingham, Empire, Alabama. And Buck always surmised. He believed that Dan Bankhead became a little shell-shocked when he got to the major leagues because he was fearful of what might happen if he hit a white batter, that it might incite a race riot. Well, what happens in Dan Bankhead's first appearance in the major leagues? I'd be damned. He hits a white batter. Bankhead's stuff was so good that it moved so much that it moved in on the first batter that he hit and hit him on the elbow. Nothing happened. The batter ultimately dropped the bat and went to first base. But you can rest assured in the mind of Dan Bankhead, he's like, uh-oh, 
you know, what's going to happen now? And for some odd reason, he could never harness his control. And I don't care how hard you throw. If you can't get guys off the plate, then they're going to hit you unless your name is Satchel Page. Now, if your name is Satchel Page, that's a different story. But there's only one Leroy Satchel Page. And so Dan Bankhead was never able to harness his control. He became a bit of a journeyman in the Dodgers organization. And, but also a bit of trivia. Dan Bankhead would be the first black pitcher to hit a home run. Bankhead had a great stick, like most of the pitchers in the Negro Leagues. And we talked about this in our episode when we talked about Bullet Rogan and the great two-way stars of the Negro Leagues, Dan Bankhead could rake. And Dan Bankhead also becomes the first black pitcher in his first game in the major leagues. He hits a home run in that game, becoming the first black pitcher to hit a home run in the major leagues. And so those five guys would go up. Willard Brown, and I go back to Willard Brown, because one of my favorite pieces inside the Negro Leagues Museum is his Hall of Fame plaque from Puerto Rico. Willard Brown won the Triple Crown in Puerto Rico twice. And for the older Puerto Rican baseball fan, Willard Brown was as much revered as the great Roberto Clemente. You see, in Puerto Rico, the, the Puerto Rican baseball fans would call Willard Brown ese hombre, that man. And they would start to chant every time Willard Brown came to the plate because they knew something magical was going to happen. He is, again, renowned and revered in Puerto Rico, but he never got his opportunity to go back to the major leagues. And I also think the thing that hurt Brown and Thompson to some degree is that their temperament was a lot different than both Dobie and Jackie Robinson. Because, guys, you've got to understand that for all of these black ball players, they cannot just focus on their craft. It would be one thing if you could just go to work every day and focus on what you had to do on the baseball field. But to a player that would break baseball's color barrier, they just simply weren't afforded that opportunity or they felt like they weren't afforded that opportunity. Jackie Robinson was carrying 21 million black folks on his back when he walked across those lines as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And had he failed, an entire race of people would have failed. That's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to have to bear. Well, Larry Doby was carrying that same weight. Henry Thompson, Willard Brown, Dan Bankhead, and subsequently the other black players that followed them they were carrying that same weight. They understood that if they don't succeed, it was going to be doubly difficult for another black player to get the opportunity. And then you're dealing with an environment where no one wanted you to be there. It wasn't like any of these players were welcomed with open arms. Now, did guys subsequently start to warm up to them? Of course they did. And particularly in the case of Brooklyn, when Jackie started to help Brooklyn win, it didn't really matter what color Jackie was. So yeah, eventually they started to warm up to these guys. But every one of these guys had the same story of how difficult it was, how challenging it was when they walked into that major league locker room for the very first time, fully understanding and feeling isolated. 
Nobody wanted you to be there. In the case of Larry Doby, 23 years old, no one would shake his hand when he walked into the, the Indians locker room. And that's the story that you hear from virtually every one of those players who ultimately would integrate these major league teams. And that's just the players. But what about the struggles of baseball's first black manager? Well, barrier breaker Frank Robinson tells the tale of fighting the same fight of inequality just against a different enemy at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in 2012. Oh, yes, I wanted to be a manager, but I didn't want to be a player manager. No, no. No, I did. I wanted to be a manager one day, but I didn't want to be a player manager. So when I sat down to talk about managing a ball club out of the clear blue, the general manager told me, we want you to manage the Cleveland Indians. And the season was over. We had three games to go. I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. But he said, we want you to be a player manager. I said, I don't want to be a player manager. It's hard enough to play this game as it is than to be a player manager. That's going to make it even tougher. He says, no, we want you to be a player manager. I said, okay, how much are you going to pay me to be a manager? Because I had a contract for 180000 for the following year. And he said, we're going to pay you 200000 I said, now, wait a minute. I said, I wasn't very good in math. <laughs> but I know that he's talking about paying me $20,000 to manage the club. And I get the 180 for uh, being a player. And he says, uh, I said, you're only going to pay me $20,000 to manage the club? He said, that's right. Take it or leave it. So I had, a, I, had a, I had to do some thinking real quick. And I decided I wanted to follow the cause of African Americans and, and minorities in baseball, that barrier was still there. If I turn this job down, when will that door open again for a black person to walk through that door as a manager? So I decided to take the job, and uh, I was player manager for two years, and I didn't play myself very much. I played myself against soft left-handers <laughs> and pinch hit in the ninth inning with, with less than two outs with the bases loaded. I, I was smart enough to do that. I find it interesting that of the first 20 players to move into Major League Baseball after Moses Fleetwood walked in the late 1800s, the first 20, every one of them came out of the Negro Leagues. That's just a sampling of the talent. I, I mean, in that list, is incredible. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, Dan Bankhead, Roy Campanella, Satchel Paige, Minnie Minoso, Don Newcomb. We talked about Monty Irving, Big Luke Easter, Sam Jethro, Luis Marquez, Ray Noble, Artie Wilson, Harry Simpson, Willie Mays, Sam Harrison, Bob Boyd, and Sam Jones. The first 20 to play in the major leagues. Every one of them came out of the Negro Leagues. And even though all of them weren't necessarily the first to break their team's color barriers, but even when we look at the list of those who did break the color barrier on their respective teams, the moral majority of those players also came out of the Negro Leagues. And so you can see why it was this slow death for the Negro Leagues, because you had siphoned so much of this talent out that it was virtually impossible for the Negro Leagues to continue 
to succeed. The other aspect of this exhibit that I really love is the fact that we didn't just focus on those who broke the color barrier with their respective major league teams, but we also take a look at the other major sports. The NFL, Fritz Pollard and Bobby Marshall would break the color barrier in 1920. Fritz Pollard would become the first black NFL coach a year later. The story of Fritz Pollard tragically goes largely untold. Like Jackie Robinson years later, he was a collegiate star at running back. Pollard was Brown University's first black player and led the team to the 1916 Rose Bowl, where he became the first black player in Rose Bowl history. As a professional, he won a championship in 1920. And like Jackie Robinson again years later, Fritz Pollard endured a career of abuse with the strongest of wills just because of his skin color. Here's the voice of the late Fritz Pollard, courtesy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. For years and years, my father had taught us how to not pay any attention to anything like that. Uh, even in intercollegiate football, guys used to hold oh, little black boy and things like that, the Yale team and the Harvard team, you know. And even out where I lived, in the community in which I lived, people used to say, oh, that's that little black boy, that athlete, this and that and the other thing. So it was one of those things that I became accustomed to because I knew that if I didn't pay any attention to it, they would be apologetic a little later when they met me by saying, well, we didn't know anything about you. You didn't get mad because we called you a little black boy. I said, what are you talking about? They used to hit me, one on top, one below, in order to try to take me out. But my brothers had taught me how to spin out of those kind of things. And then when they would do it, they would say, well, you little black, I'll get you the next time. So the next time they'd tear into me, and one of them would tear at my knees, the other one would tear at my head, and I would spin just the same and twirl around. Fortunately, my brothers, as I said, had taught me what to do, and I never got hurt. What happened in the, in the game against Canton when the, the two guys got knocked out? How did you... Well, the same trick that I just spoke of, I spun around and, and they both hit each other. And they didn't hit me and whatnot, and, and, and I had run into that on several occasions during my intercollegiate career, and I had practiced and had learned how to handle those situations. Fritz Pollard, Bobby Marshall, and several other black players suffered the same indignity of Moses Fleetwood Walker as they were exiled from the NFL through, quote-unquote, another gentleman's agreement. I think we get the impression and understanding that these gentlemen agreements weren't too doggone gentlemanly. And, and I think the sentiment was the same thing, just as it was with Moses Fleetwood Walker. We don't want anything to happen to him. Well, same thing in the NFL. We don't really want anything to happen to him. And of course, we don't want them there. By 1926, all of those black players had been exiled from the NFL. And it would be 20 years later before Kenny Washington would re-break the color barrier. In another interesting twist of irony, Kenny Washington and Jackie Robinson 
were in the same UCLA backfield along with their teammate, Woody Strode. Woody Strode would also sign a contract the same year that Kenny Washington does to play with then the Los Angeles Rams. And uh, I find it interesting that those three star tailbacks, what a, and what a backfield that was at UCLA at that time, that all of them play a role in integrating professional sports. Jackie, of course, in the major leagues. Kenny Washington, the son of Edgar Blue Washington, who had played in the Negro Leagues with the Chicago American Giants and ended his career in 1920 with the Kansas City Monarchs. Woody Strode would become a great actor, a great Hollywood actor. And, and of course, Kenny Washington and Jackie Robinson would both be barrier breakers themselves. And then when we go over and look at the NBA, it would be Earl Lloyd who would take the floor the first black to play in the NBA with the Detroit Pistons. But it was Nat Sweetwater Clifton who would be the first to sign an NBA contract with the New York Knicks. Nat Sweetwater Clifton was a six foot eight inch first baseman for the Chicago American Giants. That's the kind of athlete that we're talking about that called the Negro Leagues home. And as you all could well imagine, when I'm walking people through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and we get to Jackie Robinson, and I tell folks that baseball was Jackie's weakest sport, the look on their face is like, you got to be kidding me because Jackie Robinson is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And well, baseball was Jackie's weakest sport. Jackie Robinson was a much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player. He turns himself into an eventual Hall of Fame caliber baseball player. Some say that Jackie was an even better tennis player. So there was nothing that he couldn't do. He was one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. But that was the athlete that called the Negro Leagues home. Here's Nat Sweetwater Clifton, six foot eight inch, first baseman playing for the Chicago American Giants, but then go on to star for the New York Knicks and, of course, also the Harlem Globetrotters. And so sensational talent. And then, of course, my dear friend, the great Willie O'Ree, who would become the first Black to play in the NHL with the Boston Bruins in 1958. Here's Willie O'Ree, the Jackie Robinson of hockey, courtesy of Sirius XM NHL Network Radio on his baseball hero, Jackie Robinson. He was a big impact. I, I met Mr. Robinson in 1949. I was playing baseball um, in, my, in my hometown, and the reward, uh, we won, the, we won the, the, the championship, and the reward was our team was going to be taken to New York and, you know, uh, see all the sites, the um, uh, Empire State Building, uh, Coney Island, the Radio Music City, Highland City, uh, all in so um, we play. Uh, we we go over and watch the um, watch the Dodgers play in Ebbets Field, and I met Mr. Robinson, and uh, and I told him that, that you know I said uh, uh, Mr. Robinson is certainly a pleasure, and and um, I play baseball, and uh, I also play hockey. He says, Oh, you play hockey? There's no black kid playing hockey. Is there? Oh yeah, he says, there's, there's a few. So um, I talked with him for maybe seven or eight minutes, and then I left. I never saw him again. Until 19, uh, 1963, I was, uh, I was playing in Los Angeles 
for the Los Angeles Blades in the Western Hockey League, and I got an invitation to the uh, NAACP uh, luncheon. Mr. Robinson was going to be the keynote speaker. So I go to the luncheon, and, uh, and the first thing, uh, you know, when I said to Mr. Robinson, I'm, I'm Willie O'Ree, and uh, I'm playing hockey. Oh, yeah, you're, I met you. You're that young fellow that uh, <laughs> I met. And how's it going? I said, oh, it's going well, Mr. Robinson. I'm, I'm playing. Uh, I turned professional, and uh, I'm playing here in, in Los Angeles. Uh, given the name that, you know, Willie O'Ree, the Jackie Robinson of hockey, it's, it's stood with me over these years, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite honored and uh, uh, quite excited about even, you know, being in the same category as Mr. Robinson. Again, Boston has a black hockey player before Boston would allow a black baseball player to take the field because Pomsey Green would come to the Red Sox a year after Willie O'Ree breaks the color barrier in the NHL. Willie O'Ree wanted to play baseball. And we've had the great pleasure of having him here on several occasions. And what a delightful man he is. And one of my favorite stories, he talked about how much his father wanted him to play baseball. Because again, when Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, this is euphoria for black folks. It really was. And so when we dubbed the episode why he was first to land on the moon, it's because for black folks, Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier was equivalent or exceeded the euphoria of those of the first man, Neil Armstrong, to land on the moon. And, and so now you wanted your black son to play baseball. And like virtually every black parent, you wanted your son to fall in love with baseball. And Willie O'Ree's father wanted him to play Major League Baseball. Willie O'Ree gets invited to Braves camp, to the Braves camp, and Willie O'Ree tells the story of getting on the bus in Canada. And when he leaves home, he's on the front. He's sitting in the front of the bus. By the time he gets to the Mason-Dixon line, headed to, I believe, Macon, Georgia, he's in the back of the bus. And that didn't sit very well with him. And I think it killed any aspiration that he may have had of trying to pursue a Major League Baseball career. To think about that, Boston has a black hockey player before they have a black baseball player. And the fact that Willie O'Ree would move to hockey because it shuddered him to think about the racism that was a part of our sport at that time. And like Jackie Robinson, and like Fritz Pollard before, the dangers of being the first man to break that barrier were very real for Willie O'Ree. You know, even when I played junior, you know, I had personal racial remarks directed towards me. And, you know, but I let it went in one ear and out the other. Uh, I was concentrating on, on playing hockey and representing the hockey club to the best of my ability and, and hopefully, you know, getting into the NHL. And then when I did, um, you know, I, I, had, uh, I had problems, again, with uh, racial remarks, but... Again, I didn't let it bother me. I, I, I just said, hey, I'm a black man um, playing in the National Hockey League, and if they can't accept me for the skills and the ability to have at that time to play there, then it's their tough luck. But, you know, I fought a lot and, uh, when I first started, and um, I fought because I had to, not because I wanted to. Right. But I, I wanted to say if I'm going to leave the league, it's not because I'm going to be run out. It's going to be because I, I, I don't have the skills and the ability to play anymore. But 
it got a little easier, and then, uh, you know, the 21 years I played pro, um, I, uh, I felt that I had... Uh, that I had earned, uh, that I had earned the the, the respect, uh, not only from the players but from the from the fans. There was one time in Chicago, and I and I've talked about this incident. And um, but uh, what had happened is uh, it was my first uh, trip into Chicago, and um, I got in I got into a, a, a fight and uh, with Eric Nestorenko, a big uh, you may remember yep. the name, a big right right winger, about six four, about oh two thirty five. Well, anyway. Um, uh, I take a shot in the Chicago net, and I go in, uh, in I get to get the puck, and I, I pass it out. And uh, Eric comes in on my blind side, and he butt ends, butt ends me in the mouth with uh, with his stick, and knocks my two front teeth out, and he splits my nose, splits my lip, and so uh, you know I I hit him over the head with my stick, and we uh, we got into a big fight, and he got the best of me, and then the both benches emptied, and we were both thrown out of the game, and so I'm in the dressing room, and Coach Milt Schmidt said, Willie, he says. Um, uh, uh, I, I've, I've got to say, you've got to stay in the dressing room. He said these fans are so irate that they're. Um, I don't want anything to happen to you. So I'm in the dressing room now. This this happened about six minutes into the first period. Mm-hmm. They had two police officers standing out in front of the uh, the, the uh, Bruins Bruins door, and I'm in the dressing room. And I want to come back out on the bench after they had plugged my nose and stitched me all up and everything. I wanted to come back out and at least sit on the bench with the team. But no, I, I'm in the dressing room, so I turn I, I turned the lights out in the in the dressing room, and I sat in the dark for about four or five minutes, and I just sat there and I just I kind of meditated to myself, and then I turned the lights on and I said, no, the hell with it. I said, if I'm going to leave this league, I'm not going to I'm going to leave it because I don't have the skills and the ability to play anymore. That was the one the only time that I really felt that I said, hey, let's just pack it up, Willie, and go back. But uh, I just decided right there that I'm I'm going to I'm going to stick it out. And, um, and and make it happen. And he would become this barrier breaker in the NHL and just an amazing human being. And so this barrier breaker exhibit is one that we are immensely proud of and is one that I hope many will come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to experience it. But we're also building a traveling version of barrier breakers. So be on the lookout for that because I am sure we will be coming to a city near you sometime very soon with the timing of this release of barrier breakers, the traveling exhibit. Of course, it will be next year as we celebrate and commemorate the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking Major League Baseball's color barrier. Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier, as we've mentioned prior, was not just a part of the civil rights movement. It was the beginning of the civil rights movement. But we would be doing a complete disservice if we just focused on that pioneering moment of Jackie Robinson and not remember Larry Doby, Hank Thompson, Willett Brown, and Dan Bankhead, pioneers in their own right, all who landed on major league teams in 1947, but also to tip our cap to all of the other pioneers who would break Major League Baseball's color barrier over that span of 12 years from 1947 through 1959. And as we've mentioned on this show, to give you an understanding of the immediate impact that the Negro Leagues had on Major League Baseball from 1949 to 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. 
there's no doubt in my mind that had the doors opened sooner, the record books would be entirely different. But for now, we salute the Barrier Breakers. Coming up next on Black Diamonds, an exclusive one-on-one conversation with the man who makes a Kansas City Monarchs jersey look the bestest look since Satchel Paige. The son of a major leaguer, the part owner of a major league franchise, a barrier breaker himself, and an NFL MVP, Patrick Mahomes. Major League Baseball on Sirius XM is a fan's field of dreams. I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the Sirius XM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray. There's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. This summer, experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLB Museum KC and follow Bob at NLBM Prez. He is arguably the face of the NFL, and he has left an impression here in the great city of Kansas City. I am thrilled to have Kansas City Chief MVP, Super Bowl winning quarterback Patrick Mahomes as a guest on Black Diamonds. Patrick, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, I appreciate y'all having me. Yeah, no, I'll just get right to it. You grew up in a baseball locker room. And so growing up as the son of a baseball player, how much understanding early on did you have as it related to the passion and, and the struggles of what the Negro Leagues represented? Anything that your father shared with you early on? Early on, I kind of just watched and learned what it was like to be a professional athlete. And I think as I got older, uh, my dad kind of let me learn more and informed me more of the Negro Leagues and, and the players that came um, before him to help pave the way for him to be in Major League Baseball and, and him to be on a, a national stage that he was on. And then as I got older, uh, I was actually I was actually able to read uh, a couple of books. I wish I remembered the titles to them. And they talked about the, the Negro Leagues and how much of a, of a show it was uh, for having the night games and having them on the, the weeknights and weekends where people would come out and watch them of all races, not just African-American race, but I mean, it, it was all races that were there watching the baseball games. And there were so many great players that come from the Negro Leagues that either came in at the end of their career to the, the major leagues, or they never even got a chance to play in the major leagues, but they were so dominant uh, ba- baseball players. Yeah, no, I, I recall, and, I, and I, I would imagine that you remember as a rookie coming here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which I thought was one of the coolest things that the, the Chiefs were, you know, were doing in terms of getting you guys indoctrinated to things here in this city. And I was so proud that one of the stops was the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And having the opportunity to walk you and your fellow rookie classmates through the museum was always very meaningful to me. And I knew that you paid particular interest in Satchel Paige. Yeah, it, it's, uh, he was my dad's favorite pitcher. I, I knew who he was, and I knew how, how talented he was and how long he pitched for. 
But I think that day coming into the Negro League Museum and, and learning kind of those historical tales, those, those tales that I'd heard my dad talk about when I was a little kid and seeing the factual stuff of him and how he was able to pitch and dominate and then pitch until, I mean, a man, he was almost probably around 50 years old while he was still pitching and still dominating and, and throwing the fastball that he had, but all the different pitches that he had. Um, and obviously with the, the Monarchs in Kansas City, it, it worked out perfectly. I was able to come to a place where he was able to play and pitch and uh, really show out everything that he could do in his career. Yeah. And now, as a black athlete, walking into this environment, and even in your role as a black quarterback, and I'm sure understanding your place in this game as a black quarterback, but then someone who has played baseball and and particularly in that pitching role, which was not a role that transitioned to the major leagues with the level in which some of the other positions did, just as you know, the challenge of being a black quarterback throughout history. You know, did you have thoughts relative to that as you were in this environment? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I had, a, I had a greater understanding of uh, me playing the position that I play um, and, and watching the history of it. I mean, the black quarterback um, wasn't a, a very common thing uh, throughout history. And, it, and it, even if you played quarterback and you thought you were good at the play quarterback, it usually would make you switch positions to play a different position because that was what was done and what was kind of accepted uh, in the past. And for me to kind of, and me and some of these other guys to come out um, now and be able to play this position, it, it started with guys like Warren Moon and, and Doug Williams, uh, them showing that the black quarterback could, could go out there and have success in many different ways and not just a runner, but could throw it from the pocket and do everything you needed to have success. Um, and I think you see that uh, with kind of how baseball evolved. And whereas guys like Jackie Robinson and then Hank Aaron came in and they and obviously do- dominated hitting the ball and, and playing the outfield, you saw guys like Satchel Page come out and, and pitch and just really be a dominant pitcher, which paved the way for guys like my dad and Latroy Hawkins and all these yes. guys now that, that have become pitchers and been able to pitch and, and build careers throughout that. Well, you know, I just happened to be in Atlanta last week and your dad was there as part of the Hank Aaron Invitational and we got a chance to chat a little bit. And LaTroy, who was one of the first group of young major leaguers to start frequently coming to visit the museum, the guys that you know, I know and know extremely well, LaTroy, obviously your godfather, but Tory Hunter and Jock Jones, they were always mainstays here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And to see them now passing down their knowledge of the game and trying to make sure that there's a bridge for black kids in particular to play this game and dream of playing this game at the highest level, that was pretty special to be there in that environment. Now, I got I to thank you, number one, Patrick, because you've worn that Kansas City Monarch jersey on a couple of occasions. The first time you wore Satchel's number 25 and and, and people Mm -hmm. went nuts. And then the next time you wore Jackie Robinson's number five and and people went nuts again. And so as a person who understands the importance of brand ambassadorship, I want to thank you personally because you help us sell a lot of those jerseys. I hope you'll wear another jersey for us as well. Oh, for sure. And I think it's, <laughs> and obviously it, it's a, it's a tremendous honor. I think is the yeah. biggest thing to, to not only support the Kansas city community and the history that we have in Kansas city, but to, to support the, the Negro leagues and everything that is done. Cause I mean, I know I play football, but the fact of, of the things that baseball kind of transpired of, of getting uh, the black athlete into the top professional sports is something that has helped me be where I am today. And I understand that. And I want to make sure that I'm giving back, 
the love that they, that people have went through the hardships of making me have the ability to be where I am. Yeah, well, I tell you what, we, in all sincerity, we appreciate that. And even more than the fact that it obviously created a lot of interest in people wanting to now emulate what you had done. And I think that helped them identify with those great monarch teams. And that's 1942, 1945. But the fact that someone of your magnitude who is revered in this community embracing the heritage of sports, because it doesn't really matter what sports discipline you play professionally in this country. If you are Black, all roads lead back to the Negro Leagues. And and so that endorsement of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, I can't tell you how important that was. And, and I know accuracy is a big part of what your game is all about. And that also is a little flair, because I have no doubt, Patrick, that you could have played in the Negro Leagues. You kind of embody that <laughs> spirit. I think you understand, you know, our owner and your friend John Sherman and I oftentimes talk about this, is that we are in the entertainment business. And sometimes we kind of lose sight that, yes, this is about entertainment. And you touched on that when you first started talking about how the Negro League players were entertainers. And so do you feel like you kind of embody that spirit? Yeah, I I think I do. And I I think I got that kind of from my dad. I think that's the biggest thing. And he would emulate uh, kind of the windups and stuff that Satchel Paige would do um, that kind of add that little flair to his game. And I think that's what I do on the football field is obviously I want to go out there and have success and then play the game and do everything the right way. But when it it comes to having fun and and, and showing a little entertainment and enjoying myself on the field, I'm going to do that. I think you see that in the way I play the game, and it comes from uh, the history of – I learned it from my dad who learned it from from guys in the Negro Leagues and guys that he he looked up to growing up. I I think we all appreciate the way that you play the game. We love the mindset, the commitment, the passion that you bring to the game. To me, all of that embodies what the Negro Leagues were all about, and – you know, it's really special to see. And I know our, our community has completely embraced that. But I think that's what people learn when they come here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You are going to see great baseball, fundamentally sound baseball. But Patrick, you're going to be thoroughly entertained by the time you left that venue. And that's, uh, that to me is something that sometimes get lost in the equation. Now, your voice was used very prominently throughout this past tumultuous year from a social standpoint, which I think was very much reminiscent of the Negro Leagues. Because for me, the Negro Leaguers, really, they were using their voice in a similar fashion to fight for social justice. You know, and they were on the front line before we even knew anything about protests in that manner. But you took it upon yourself to utilize your voice to help try and create social change. Why was that important to you? I think it was important to me um, because I, I think I finally had a realization that I, I had a voice and that people listen to what I say and what I, what I said to the, to the media or wherever that was. And I think I kind of formulated a lot of evidence from guys around me, um, from people that I talked to, um, and just from, from reading and, and seeing what people are going through. And I wanted to make sure that I gave my best informed opinion that I could do to, to make change in this world. I mean, we had been on this platform and we've been kind of thankful for playing the game that we love and being able to play on this, uh, the top of, of, of our profession. 
but we, we weren't, we were letting things slide by that we shouldn't have let slide. Um, and I was tired of the same situations happening over and over again, seeing a lot of hurt and pain and a lot of people's, uh, face when you're watching TV. And I knew that enough was kind of enough and I needed to use my voice no matter what the consequences were going to be, uh, to, to try to make change in the best way possible. And that's what I did. And, and by, I feel like by me talking, it gave other guys confidence too, that they were able to use their voice. And I think we, we've kind of started that now. We started to make change. We started to show that it's not right. Some of the things that have been happening within our communities around this nation um, and around the world. And I think it'll, if we continue to, to, to fight the good fight and continue to use our voice and go out and, and make action happen, uh, I think that we can leave the world a better place than the one that we entered. And I, I want to do that for, for my kids and their kids. Yeah, no, man, I tell you what, it is so, so important. I was very fortunate to lead conversations in and around these kinds of issues throughout the course of last year and into this year with young athletes who were courageously using their platforms and the fact that their organizations were supporting them. I think a long time ago, the organizations may have been a little bit shielded from wanting to protect their players who were standing up and fighting these issues. But I'm thrilled that the organizations themselves are also rallying around these young men and women who are using their voices and their platforms to try and invoke social change in our country. And so I commend you for being out at the forefront of this. And that gets me to my final question, because I think you'll be thrilled to know that we just opened a a new exhibit here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum called Barrier Breakers. And Patrick, the Barrier Breaker exhibit chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson joining Brooklyn in 1947 through Elijah Pumpsy Green being the last to integrate with the Boston Red Sox 12 years later. But also part of this exhibition, we take a look at the integration of the NFL. So the story of Fritz Pollard is told, who, of course, the NFL would break the color barrier before Major League Baseball. But then the NFL did exactly what baseball had done in the late 1800s. They put in a gentleman's agreement that would ultimately ban Fritz Pollard and others who looked like him from playing. And then Kenny Washington would re-break the color barrier in the NFL. And so we wanted that story to be a part of this, as well as the story of the breaking of the barrier in the NBA and the NFL. And so it leads me to this question. What do you think we need to do more of to make sure that those trailblazers in your sport are not forgotten? Kenny Washington was in the backfield with Jackie Robinson. Man, it was one heck of a backfield because it's Kenny Washington, Jackie Robinson, and Woody Strode. And they had a dynamic backfield at UCLA. But what do you think we need to do? And I'm hoping there's a collaboration that we all can do to make sure that those trailblazing pioneers, black pioneers of the NFL, are not forgotten. I think it's doing what's exactly what you're doing right now. And, that, and that's getting the conversation going, educating uh, our, the younger generation, um, and continue to, to, to get that knowledge out there. And about the Negro League Museum opening up um, kind of a new exhibit where they're talking about football, and you talking about it on this podcast like today, I mean, that's going to continue the education that we need in order to, to continue to inspire guys and, and younger guys in our generation to be uh, the leaders that they are. Well, man, I tell you what, Patrick, best of luck this coming season. I'll be glued to TV like I am every week watching you do your thing. 
I appreciate not only what you do on the football field, but more importantly, what you're doing off the field, your connection with our sport as now a part owner of the Royals and all the other wonderful things that your foundation is doing to the benefit that is enhancing the quality of life for citizens in this community is more than commendable. Uh, I look forward to seeing you and I look forward, I told, talk to your dad, I look forward to seeing him back here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum sometime in the future. But Mr. Patrick Mahomes, thank you so much for your time and for being on Black Diamond. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.